Good morning, GAC family. Um, before I begin, I, I just want to um, start by saying, well, I, sh- I should say acknowledge and publicly thank um, Joel and Joe. Um, because for those of you who don't know, what they've been doing is uh, they've been they've kind of taken Luca, Lauren, Abril, and myself in, and they've been training us, preparing us, discipling us, and we're really grateful for uh, what they've been doing uh, with us and the the time and energy that they've invested in us. We're really grateful. Yes. Absolutely. That being said, if today's sermon goes completely sideways, feel free to blame them. Yeah. Specifically, Joel. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, please turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Last week, Joel got us started on a new sermon series um, on the book of Philippians. And this week, we're going to continue right where he left off at verse 12. And he did a great job taking us through the introduction of the book and up to verse 11. But we're going to pick up right where he left off at verse 12. So please follow along as I read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Let's take a moment to pray. Father God, we're we're grateful that we can come together like this one more time and to be able to worship you with our brothers and sisters. Uh, Father God, I ask and pray that you help us never to take these moments for granted. And we're also grateful for your word and how powerful it is. And I ask and pray that as we spend some time in it this morning, that you would open our hearts and minds to see the beautiful truths in it. And that you would be the one to convict us and that you would teach us to trust in you and to rely on you in our everyday lives. But Father God, at the same time, human words are simply not capable of doing that. So as I speak, I ask and pray that you would be the one to speak through me and that it would be your words and not my own. In your precious name we pray. Amen. So, growing up in the Indian uh, community, my family had placed a certain expectation on me. And by family, I don't mean just my dad and mom. I mean my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my church family. So really, a lot of people around me had placed a certain expectation on me. And this expectation was to get married within the Indian culture. Now... I should preface it by saying that they had the best of intentions for me when they had placed that expectation on me. Because you see, the Indian culture, we're a very collective group. We go through life together. 
right? If, if one of us is happy, everyone is happy. If one of us is sad, everyone is sad. If one of us is rejoicing something or celebrating something in life, we're all celebrating together. So essentially, we as a collective group, we celebrate or we go through life's journey together. It's a really neat thing. But imagine for a moment introducing an outsider to the group. Imagine for a moment that um, us as a family, we're sitting around talking, laughing, enjoying, having a good time. And that person sitting over there, they, they're going to feel like an outsider because they can't relate culturally or there might be certain language barriers. So they're going to feel left out. So in that sense, in that sense, my family had the best of intentions when they had placed that expectation on me to get married within the Indian culture because they wanted to bring someone into the family that would be able to relate culturally. Well, um, we know how that story ended. Um, I ended up coming to Emmaus, and in January of 20, well, my second year there, um, I met a bro, and in January of 2020, we started dating. And I made the conscious decision not to tell my parents that. Because I knew it would be, there would be some hard conversations to have. And I, I was kind of dodging it. I was kind of avoiding it. But um, at about our six-month mark, I had reached a bit of an impasse. I, I couldn't go any longer. For certain reasons, I couldn't go any longer without telling my parents um, that Abril and I were dating. So um, I call up my parents, I talk to them on the phone, and I tell them, Dad and Mom, um, I've been talking to someone. I've been dating um, someone that's not Indian. And there were some hard conversations that came with that. And those hard conversations were inevitable. But these are conversations that we needed to have as a family. And it was definitely hard at first. It was definitely hard at first. But I kept, as Paul would say, pressing on. Because I eventually came to a point where I understood that my struggles, or my sufferings, if you will, were far greater than myself. I eventually got to a point where I understood that if I chose to be faithful to the the struggles, the sufferings that God had entrusted to me, that God could use my situation, that He could use my circumstance to show everyone in my community that human beings, regardless of race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, are all created in the image of God. And as we go through this passage this morning, what I want you to see is that God is capable, He's more than capable of using our sufferings. And when I say sufferings, I don't mean a, a stub your toe kind of suffering. No, no, no. When I talk about, when I'm going to be talking about sufferings this morning, I'm, I'm referring to suffering for the sake of Christ. I'm referring to suffering for the sake of the gospel. Let me tell you something. God is more than capable of using our sufferings to bring us joy. He's more than capable of using our sufferings for the good of those around us. And ultimately, for His glory. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to take it a couple of verses at a time, starting with verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I mean, right off the bat, something worth noting here is Paul's incredible attitude. I mean, he's sitting in prison and he's excited. He's excited. Is he excited about the fact that he's sitting in prison? No, no, no. He's, he's excited because him sitting in prison is a reason for the gospel being advanced. 
he's excited about the fact that more people are hearing about Christ because he's sitting in prison. And that's what he's excited about. Let's keep going. Verse uh, 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, in those times, um, when someone was under house arrest, they would be chained to a guard for 24 hours of the day, seven days of the week. And it was a really neat thing. I mean, these guards, they would do it in shifts, right? So every three to four hours, a new guard would come in and uh, chain themselves to the prisoner. And you can imagine for someone who's so excited about the gospel, how excited Paul must have been. As far as he's concerned, he's not chained to the guards. The guards are chained to him. Because, you see, he now has access to a group of people that he otherwise would not have had access to. He's now able to preach the gospel. He's able to tell about Christ to Roman unbelievers. And he was so excited about that. And he gets to talk to them. He gets to have conversations with them. He gets to tell them about the joy and hope of being in Christ. And they get to listen. They get to observe. They get to ask questions. And it was a really neat thing. So that begs the question, did any of these guards actually end up getting saved? Well, I'm sure some of them heard the gospel and rejected it. But I'm willing to bet, actually, I want to say that some of them did end up accepting Christ. Because, you see, um, later on in the book, in chapter 4, verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. He refers to them as saints. So Paul's language here certainly makes it seem like there were some of these guards got saved. But, you know, as I, as I, as I was um, studying through this passage... What I found to be really neat was that um, in the Roman culture, the head of the household determined the religion of the, the whole family unit. And I mean, the, the family unit consists of the husband, the, the wife, the, the kids, maybe even some slaves, or any other relatives that were living under the same household. In other words, if when Paul is consi- being um, persistent in his pursuit of the gospel, when Paul is persistent on continuing to continue his work, when he's preaching the gospel to these guards, and if any one of them got saved, they would go home, and they would tell their wives about it, or they would tell their kids about it, and they would tell their slaves about it. So Paul is excited because when he's converting one of these guards, he's not just converting the guard, no, 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 he's he's penetrating the whole family. It's a really neat thing. And so for that reason, Paul is so excited. He's so excited. He's sitting in prison and he's excited because he gets to still continue his work for Christ. It's an incredible attitude to have. But at the same time, Paul had every reason to be frustrated. He had every reason to be upset and angry at God. He could have very easily said, God, I toil and labor for you. I have put my life out there for you. I poured my life out on the mission field for you. And this is what I get. I get tossed in prison for everything that I've done for you. Paul had every reason to complain. 
Instead, what we see is that Paul is a model of joy and contentment. He's a model of joy and contentment. And that's because he didn't find his joy and contentment in um, physical comfort. He didn't find his joy and comfort from his possessions or his freedom. He didn't find his um, joy and contentment from prestige, and we'll see that later on in chapter 3. No. He found his joy and contentment by placing his trust in a very sovereign God. He understood that the God that he worshipped and served was a sovereign God, or is a sovereign God. Paul understood that the God that he worshipped is fully in control of every single one of his circumstances in life. He knew that. He understood that. He understood that there was a reason for why God was doing what he was doing. Even though he might not necessarily understand it in the moment, God had a reason for why he was doing what he was doing. And that God was fully in control. So this morning, the question that I want to ask you, the question that I want you guys to think about, is do you believe that God is in control of your life? How are you going to respond in your moment of suffering? How are you going to respond? Paul's imprisonment not only served to advance the gospel um, within the walls of his um, house arrest or imprisonment or jail cells, but also on the outside. And we see that in the following verses. Let's start at verse uh, 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How many of us have um, heard of Graham Staines? Have any of us heard of the story of Graham Staines? Maybe one of you, two of you. It's, it's unlikely that you may have heard of him. He was a missionary uh, from Australia. And he picked up his whole life, he uprooted his whole life along with his family, and they um, moved to India. And they d- did a lot of mission work and evangelism there. And, well, for those of you who know what the Indian government is like, they don't like evangelists. They don't like missionaries to come in and evangelize. The radical Hindus there especially don't like it. So what Graham Stainson did was he opened a clinic um, for lepers, and that was sort of the front that he used to evangelize. So lepers would come in, they would treat them, and share the love of Christ with them, and eventually tell them about Christ. And that's the, so they used the clinic as, as an opportunity for the gospel. Eventually, unfortunately, um, the, some of the radical Hindus in that region found out about Graham Saints and what he was really doing. And they started giving giving him a hard time about it. One particular day, Graham Staines um, and his two young boys, um, I think they were about five and eight at the time, they decide to go to the next town over. The next town is at least a day or two's worth of journey. And so they get in the car, they start driving, they go to the next town um, because they need some supplies for the clinic. They pick up the supplies that they needed and they start driving back. And um, they had got to a point where it was starting to get a little late for them to continue driving. So they decided, we're going to camp out in our car. We're going to spend the night in our car and just rest here, and we'll um, pick up right where we left off in the morning. Unfortunately, some of the radical Hindus in that area where Graham James was, um, had decided to spend the night, they found out that he was in town. And they had heard about his work. 
what they decided to do was um, they got a group together and they surrounded his car and they poured gasoline all over the car and burnt him and his sons alive. It, it was an incredible story because what ended up happening was this um, that whole story, that whole situation ended up getting national attention in India. And it, the, the people who had burned um, the car and uh, Graham Staines and his sons ended up um, going to court and being convicted of murder. And the day that those guys were convicted of murder, Mrs. Staines and his daughter, or, and her daughter, were at the court. And as they were on their way out from the courthouse, Mrs. Staines walks up to them and tells them, I forgive you for what you did to my, my husband and my sons. And I want, to, I want you to know that I still love you because Christ loves you. And that whole situation, that whole story ended up getting national attention to the point where believers in India, Indian believers, they were all the more emboldened to tell people about Christ. They were all the more emboldened to, to tell unbelievers about the hope that they could have in Christ. But it made me wonder, why is that? Why is it that when we hear about our fellow brothers and sisters overseas suffering for Christ, why is it that we become more emboldened? It's not a bad thing, but why? For one, I think it's because it reminds us of our eternity. Hearing about others suffering for Christ reminds us that life is short here on this earth. And and that the... Um, the, the life that we hear, have here, it's too short not to share the gospel with those around us. And the eternity that is waiting for us, that's worth living for, and that's worth striving and suffering for. Two, I think it encourages us to share the love of Christ with those around us right here, right now. Not everyone is necessarily called to go overseas and to preach the gospel. Not everyone is called to that. But it, hearing when we hear about our brothers and sisters suffering for Christ, we're reminded that we can do that right here and right now. We don't have to go overseas. We can share the gospel with our neighbors. We can share the gospel with those around us. And finally, when we hear about others suffering for Christ, we're, um, we find a confidence to share the truth in a very, very dark world. Especially since we have an eternity worth living for, our momentary suffering, our momentary suffering seems so tiny, so minuscule, so minute. Because we have an eternity full of joy waiting for us. And in light of that eternity, our suffering seems so tiny. So, just like the Indian believers were all the more emboldened to tell people about Christ, the believers in Rome, they were all the more emboldened to tell people about Christ when they heard that Paul was tossed in prison. They were riled up. They were ready to tell people about Christ. But unfortunately for Paul, not everyone had the best of intentions. Let's look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. You see, two different groups had kind of formed, two different factions. And the first group we read about in verse 16, 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. This first group, they were preaching the gospel completely out of love. They were preaching the gospel fully knowing, fully understanding that Paul was tossed in prison because he was preaching the gospel, because for the defense of the gospel. And they understood that if they preached the gospel, if they decided to continue his work, that they too could be tossed in prison. And you know what? They didn't care. They had the best of intentions when they were preaching the gospel. They were seeking to win souls for Christ. They genuinely cared about the eternity of these unbelievers around them. And so they, they were preaching the gospel with really good intentions. But unfortunately, like we read here, there was a second group. And we read about that second group in verse 17. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Um, I have a friend named um, Andrew. And he had the misfortune of growing up to be a New York Giants fan. Um, I, being from Dallas, grew up to be... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting glares from Mr. Cook. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to not look that way. <laughs> Me, being from Dallas, grew up to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. And not that this happens often, but it, every on a rare occasion it does happen. But when the Giants do beat the Cowboys... I can bet my money that Andrew is going to give me a call. And it's not to have a good conversation with me. It's not to talk about life. It's not to even talk about the game. No, no, no. He wants to rub that win in my face. He wants to afflict me in my moment of pain. It's a very silly illustration, but it kind of shows what Paul was kind of going through here. Paul was sitting in prison. And in that moment of affliction, the Roman believers sitting outside, they were preaching the gospel not to, not to advance the gospel or not for the sake of having unbelievers hear about Christ or not because they wanted to see souls won for Christ. No, no, no. They were preaching the gospel because they wanted to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. To be maligned by unbelievers that's to be expected that's part of being a follower of Christ that's to be expected but to be maligned by your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ now that hurts that hurts there's a deep pain that comes with having your fellow brother or sister make you look bad in your ministry there's a pain that comes with them um, trying to make your uh, service to God look bad. And that's exactly what these believers were doing. Now, I don't think for a moment that they were preaching a false gospel or these were unbelievers. No, I think these were genuinely um, Roman believers. They just had ill intentions. They were looking to advance. They had selfish ambitions, is what we read here. They were looking to advance their own agendas and hurt Paul in the process. When they were preaching the gospel, they were looking to afflict Paul in his moment of pain. But how does Paul respond to that? Look at verse 18. 
What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul essentially says, I know, I know that they're out there, but I don't care. I don't care. You know why? Because people are hearing about Christ. And that was, that's how passionate Paul was about preaching the gospel. In fact, in Acts 20, verse 24, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it quickly. This is what Paul says. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was so passionate about the gospel. He didn't care that people were tossing his name around. He didn't care that believers were maligning his name and his ministry. He only cared that people were hearing about the gospel. Any suffering or hardship or maliciousness that Paul endured was just a small price to pay for the souls that were saved for an eternity. This is Paul's perspective. This is what he's thinking. He's thinking the name of Jesus Christ is being made known throughout the nations. Who cares if I lose my reputation? Who cares if I lose my physical comfort? Who cares if I lose all my possessions along the way? Lost souls are being won for Christ. Lost souls that were once headed for an eternity in hell are now headed for an eternity to be spent with our Savior. That right there is Paul's perspective. And that is, is, is the, uh, the mission that Paul so passionately lived for. That's the attitude with, that we as believers should adopt as well. Unfortunately, oftentimes in ministry, this is not the attitude that's taken among believers. Not just in Paul's time, but even today. Oftentimes, um, sometimes there's a, a sense of jealousy that comes with another ministry success. So say, for example, Luca had a ministry. He was doing mission work in Niger. And he was winning souls for Christ every single day. And I'm doing a very similar kind of ministry in Mexico. But I've been there five, ten years, and I've yet to see a soul one for Christ. In my fleshliness, in my fleshliness, I, I could be very tempted to be jealous of Luca and his success. And this is not just in the mission field. This is an often an issue here in the U.S. among the churches as well. Seeing one church become more successful than other could possibly be a reason for jealousy. Another question that I want to pose to you this morning is, do we genuinely care about lost souls? Are we genuinely joyful when souls are one for Christ? Or are we just joyful about our involvement and success in that ministry? In the beginning, um, I shared with you about how I had I had to have that difficult conversation with my parents about a bro. Well, 
Fast forward six months, January of 2021, Abril and I get engaged. Um, a few days later, dad calls me. He says, Joel, are you absolutely sure that this is the woman that you want to marry? Are you absolutely sure that this is the girl that you want to spend the rest of your life with? And I said, yeah, yeah, she's the one. He says, okay, fine. Meet me in Chicago on this day. It's a three-hour flight for them. It's a three-hour drive for us. It's a good middle point. And bro and I, we drive to Chicago. We spent the whole day with dad, mom, and my sister. By the end of the day, they absolutely loved her. They absolutely loved her. In fact, this past week, we were, not this past week, uh, two weeks ago, we were in Indiana with my parents, and we were at a family conference over there. And by the end of the conference, my uh, dad says, you know, we should pray together as a family before uh, we head our separate ways. And right before he prays, he pulls a braille to his side, and he says, you have no idea how precious you are to me. And right before he left, actually, can we put that picture up? I want to share a very special picture with you. That's my dad. And he is, he, he loves her like his own daughter. This is, this is a man who promised me that he wouldn't show up to my wedding. He showed up to our wedding. He was a part of our lives. He's a part of our marriage. And he loves Anabril like his own daughter. Only the power of God can do something like that. You see how God used my whole situation and my whole circumstance to bring me joy? God used my whole situation and circumstance to, for the good of those around us. Because of those, this whole situation, the people in my community were able to see, you know, interracial marriage, not such a bad thing. It's possible. It's possible. And ultimately, God was glorified in it. Next time, or if you're going through a hard time in your life, or the next time you endure suffering and hardship in life, I want you to remember this passage. I want you to remember what Paul went through when he was sitting in prison, and how God used his circumstance to bring Paul joy. God used his circumstance for the good of those around him. More people heard about Christ because Paul was sitting in prison. And ultimately, God was glorified in it all. And the question that I want to leave you with this morning is, how are you going to be faithful in the sufferings that God entrusts you with? Will you wallow in your suffering? Or will you press on like Paul did? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're... We're grateful for your word. We're grateful because you're capable of convicting us when we need it. You're capable of comforting us when we need it. You're capable of teaching us and disciplining us when we need it. So, Father God, I ask and pray that you would take these lessons that we heard today and that you would help us to apply it in our daily lives. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you so much for uh, speaking to us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.